I'm just going to stay down here on the main floor if that's okay with you. But I, um, I, I feel people, and I know I don't have to, but if you'll just track with me, please. I almost feel like I need to apologize for what I'm going to do tonight. I am looking at Americans, and I think that all of you would agree that sports have, has become idolatry in America. I have seen young people turn their back on the will of God so they can follow some bouncing ball somewhere. I have seen men stay home from church so they can watch some stupid ball game. Even in my home church a couple weeks ago, there were a number of men, and I was so disappointed. One of them was a deacon. But they skipped the morning service so they could go to a Carolina Panthers game. How sad. How sad. That's idolatry. And I think all of you would agree that in, in our society, sports, much like the Greek society of thousands of years ago, sports and the human body have become idolatry. But what I want you to understand, Christians, is that God, isn't that interesting? God said, Christian, I want you to look at a world-class athlete and learn some lessons. It is God, people, who's the sports fan. Now, I know that we need to be careful about that, but what I would like to do tonight is I want you to understand that God, in a number of different passages in his holy breath, says, I want you to look at the athletic event. I want you to look at the world-class athlete and learn some lessons about your Christianity. Folks, you are far better. Christians, you are far better than a world-class athlete. You are a heaven-class athlete. They get some money, they get a trophy that nobody cares about five years from now. You are going to enjoy your rewards for eternity. You have something far better than a world-class athlete. But please understand, by way of picture, by way of illustration, by way of metaphor, God says, Christian, I want you to look at a world-class athlete. Folks, we're not talking about weekend hackers like you and me when it comes to golf or tennis or whatever it is that you get into. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the athlete that's at the top of the game, the greatest. And God says through Paul, I want you to look at that world and learn some lessons. It's kind of interesting, people. There's no doubt that Paul's a sports fan. There's no doubt. He talks about wrestling. He talks about fighting. He talks about running. He talks about striving. He uses the word athleo, which is the Greek word for what we get the word athlete from, the word athletes in your Bible. Kind of interesting. So what I'd like to do tonight is, would you let me play coach? You're the athlete. Let me be coach tonight. And I want to just challenge you, athletes, heaven-class athletes, what God expects of you and me. In particular, there are many, many passages we could go to. But the passage I'm going to take you to is one of my favorites. And the fact that it's an athletic metaphor really doesn't jump out of the page at you. You kind of have to know a little Greek. You kind of have to study the context and realize, oh, Paul's referring to an athlete here. The passage I'm referring to tonight, people, is Philippians chapter 3. So if you want to get your Bible open there, that's where we'll be all evening. Philippians chapter 3. And uh, many of you, this is probably one of the most well-known passages in Philippians. And many of you have heard messages over and over about this passage. But, and, and, and folks, let me also say this. <laughs> I could keep you here all night preaching this passage. It is so deep. But what I'm going to do tonight is I want to just hit four. Count them. Just four principles that I'd like to hit tonight. There are more than that in this passage. But I want to hit four biggies. 
and because of the sake of time and just the, the, uh, the, the goal that I have for us here tonight. So I'm going to hit four, four principles that God wants you to know that you're to apply to your athletic event called Christianity. And three of the four, three of the four are in couplets. They're repeated. Now, people, please know, as a, as a Bible student, that when the Bible repeats itself, that is showing you the didactic nature of that passage. The word didactic means teaching, educational. God wants you to get this, so much so that he repeats it. Three of the four he repeats. And let me show you principle number one, could we? Your Bible is open to Philippians chapter 3. And look with me, if you would, please, at verse number 12. Verse number 12, where the metaphor starts, and he says, does Paul... Not as though I'd already attained, either were already perfect. Then, friends, jump down to verse 13, and you have the same principle repeated. Verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Would you look at me? Ladies and gentlemen, what Paul is hitting there by way of the first principle is probably the most important of all four ingredients that we're going to hit tonight. Number one is probably the most significant because it's the foundation of everything else in this passage. What Paul is describing is a phenomenon that every great athlete has. Every world class, I mean at the top of their event, the best, they've always got one common denominator, and that is this. They are always hungry for more. They are never satisfied with how many victories they've got. They're never satisfied with how many Super Bowls they've won. They're never satisfied with how many statistics they have. They're always hungry for more. And ladies and gentlemen, what a picture of you. What fascinates me about this is here's Paul saying, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to my own personal athletic event called Christianity, I'm not there yet. I'm not as good as I want to be. I want to be better. I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. This is Paul talking, people. Paul, who when he wrote this passage, you're looking at a prison epistle. Paul's at the end of his life. He's in his mid-60s, and he's telling you, I'm not as good at Christianity as I want to be. I'm not there yet. Please, I'm not there yet. That fascinates me. That's Paul. Paul makes the rest of us look brain dead when it comes to theology. And there he is telling those Philippian believers, I'm not there yet. Even though God has used me to write scripture, even though I've been to heaven, he talks about that in 2 Corinthians, even though I've been there, I just want you to know, I'm not there yet, I want to get better. And folks, that is always a primary element to you growing and being what Jesus Christ wants you to be. None of you are there yet. Even though you've got a college degree, even though you might be ordained, even though you might be a deacon, even though you might be a pastor, none of us are there yet. Every one of us ought to have a hunger. I want to get better. I want to give you an illustration. I'm a sports fan. I think that's obvious. And for 17 years, I lived in New England. And I remember when I was in New England, there just absolutely sick up there about two events, the Boston Red Sox and the New England Patriots. They love them. They just absolutely worship those two teams. The Celtics kind of come in in a distant second, but it's all about the Red Sox and the Patriots. And I remember when I was living in New England, the Patriots had a pretty good team. 
They had a quarterback by the name of Drew Bledsoe. Some of you might remember him. Drew Bledsoe was a great quarterback, and he led them to the playoffs, and I remember they lost in the playoffs, but that following summer, what you heard on sports radio in New England all summer was, it's looking good. We've got a great team. We made the playoffs, and we're only getting stronger, and Drew Bledsoe's getting better and better. Folks, he was. He was a great quarterback. Well, the very first home game of that following season in 2001, the very first home game, they were playing the New York Jets, and in the second quarter, a linebacker broke through the protection of Drew Bledsoe and literally creamed in a really hard, hard hit, just absolutely annihilated Drew Bledsoe, breaking bones and hurting some of his viscera. They had to carry Drew Bledsoe off the field. They put in his backup, number two man, that nobody knew. And they put in this backup, and the backup went out there, and he played the rest of the game, and the Patriots lost, and that backup had a, I mean, he made five completions out of 10 attempts. I think he had 46 yards passing. For those of you that don't follow statistics in the NFL, that stinks. That stinks. And all you heard all week on sports radio in New England was, and people, nobody, I mean, nobody can cry as well as a New England Patriot fan. And all you heard was, it's not fair. What are we going to do? Our season is over. What are we going to do? That's all you heard. Caller after caller after caller. Oh, shut up. But anyway, that's all you heard. That next game, a week later, that backup backup quarterback came out. He played a mediocre game, and the Patriots lost again. So for another week. The next game after that, that backup quarterback came back out and looked a little bit better, and the Patriots narrowly won. So for another week. Well, folks, let me tell you what happened. That backup quarterback kept getting better and better, and the Patriots started winning week after week after week. And nobody saw, I mean, nobody saw this coming. The Patriots made the playoffs. And in the playoffs, they kept winning. And this was a total shock to New England. The Patriots made the Super Bowl. They were huge underdogs, one of the biggest underdogs ever in the history of the Super Bowl. They were playing a team called the greatest show on turf. They were called the St. Louis Rams. Do you remember them? They had a Christian quarterback by the name of Kurt Warner. There's a recent movie that's come out about his career. Phenomenal player, phenomenal team, and the Patriots were a huge underdog. But guess what happened in the Super Bowl? The Patriots narrowly won. And all folks, let me tell you about New England. It was, ah, yes. That quarterback's name, perhaps you've heard of him. His name was and still is Tom Brady. Tom Brady. And folks, Tom Brady, I mean, the the buzz was, oh, we love Tom Brady. Drew Bledsoe, we love Tom Brady. Tom Brady, he can have my firstborn. We love Tom Brady. Who needs Drew Bledsoe? And they got rid of Drew Bledsoe and gave him to the Buffalo Bills. Well, the reason I'm telling you all this, not that any of you care, 
about the Patriots. That's not my point. What I want you to know is that that following summer, when the Patriots went to training camp under Tom Brady, ESPN, that very famous TV channel that's all about sports, put a microphone in this young man's face called Tom Brady. He's about 23 years old. And they said this. I'll never forget it. Mr. Brady, you have won it all. What more is there? How are you going to keep your drive? How are you going to keep your hunger? And this is exactly what Tom Brady said. I don't know. I've won it all. What more is there? I've lost my hunger. Can you imagine saying that on national TV? I've lost my hunger. And people, it will not shock you to learn that following season, the Patriots were very mediocre. They didn't even make the playoffs. And for the first time in his life, Tom Brady experienced losing. And he didn't like it. It was a terrible feeling. A feeling that he will never forget. And you know what happened? He got his drive back. I don't know how much you know about sports, but let me tell you about Tom Brady. He's still playing. He's 45 years old. He's still playing. He's still a winner. He is by far the best quarterback who's ever played the game. And you know why? He got his hunger back. How did he get it back? He experienced losing. What a picture of you, Christian. There is nobody here who hasn't experienced failure. There's nobody here who hasn't experienced sin after you've been saved. And you know what that should do to you? It should drive you to your knees. It should cause you to have a hunger. I don't like it. I want to get better. I don't want to sin against God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, David said. And that is so you, believer. All of us have experienced losing. And the Bible tells me that when Mike Schrock experiences losing, if he's the right kind of Christian, if he's the right kind of man, it's going to drive him to the Word of God, and it's going to drive him to grow. And my friend, I hope I'm describing you. Every one of you ought to have an attitude. I'm not there yet. I still get defeated. It bugs me. I want to grow. I want to get better. I want to get bigger. As G. Campbell Morgan, who had the entire Bible memorized, used to say, at the bottom of a man's heart that's growing in God, there's always an element of divine dissatisfaction with where they're at. My friend, you ought to have an attitude of divine dissatisfaction. None of you are there yet, nor am I. All of us should have a drive. We ought to have a hunger. I want to get better at this event called Christianity. Could I get an amen? Well, friends, when you've got that drive, the other three elements that I want to hit tonight will be strong. But it's all driven by that desire that we've just talked about for the last 15 minutes. Let me show you ingredient number two. It is also a couplet. Look at this, would you please? Verse number 12. Verse number 12. Watch this. Not as though I have already attained, either were already perfect, but I, next two words out loud, church, follow after. The word follow after is one Greek word. One Greek word. I want to show you that same Greek word again a couple verses later. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, I, what? Press. The word follow after and the word press are the exact same Greek words. And let me tell you what that is describing. That is describing 
a phenomena that every time it's preached, you want to throw tomatoes because nobody likes it. But it is so incredibly important in the life of a Christian. But people, it's probably the hardest element of Christianity. And what I'm describing is this. Every great athlete, I'm talking about at the top of their game, every great athlete is very disciplined. Disciplined. In fact, I heard on sports radio here a couple of weeks ago, I heard about a, 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 a famous athlete. He was being interviewed, and he talked about being disciplined, and he said, you, you get to the point in your, in your training that you enjoy the process. You enjoy the process. What process is he talking about? Working out every morning, keeping his body fit, practicing. You enjoy the process. Folks, what a picture of us. It is hard to have devotions. It is hard to, to, to be quiet, to be still, and know that he is God and, and spend time in prayer. Folks, the hardest thing I do, I kid you not, even though it's kind of easy, the hardest thing I do is sit down, shut up, be still, and pray. It takes discipline. What is discipline, people? What is it? Discipline is your ability, sir, and men are so weak at this. Women are so much stronger, it seems, in this capacity. But discipline is your ability to say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that right now. No, I'm not going to watch that. No, I'm not going to listen to that. No, I'm not going to go there. No, I'm not going to think like that. And your ability to say, yes, yes, I am going to do that. Yes, because God commanded me. Yes, I am going to memorize. Yes, I am going to pray. Yes, I am going to have devotions. Yes, I am going to have a life that is as sinless as I can possibly make it. But folks, discipline, we hate it. We hate it. And 2023, Christianity is so undisciplined. It's all about what I want, what I feel, what feels good to me, what I like. Folks, that's not Christianity. Christianity is your ability to be a really good murderer. You're to be a good murderer. That's what Paul meant when he said, crucified in the flesh. Your body, sir, will always fight you spiritually. Your body, ladies, will always fight you spiritually. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Every one of you that are saved are bipolar. You're bipolar. You got the flesh pulling on you and you got the Spirit of God pulling on you. Discipline is your ability to say yes to the Lord, no to the flesh. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is. <laughs> oh, that is so irritating. But friends, I'm here to tell you tonight that your body will always fight you spiritually. You never feel like going to church. You never feel like witnessing. You never feel like having devotions. But the more you do it, the more you enjoy the process. It is hard. Could I go back to my man, Tom Brady? I am not a big Patriots fan. Please don't walk out of here and, and, and uh, accuse me of something that I am not. But I am fascinated by Tom Brady. He's as unsaved as a skunk, people. But he is legendary. I'm using my words carefully. He is legendary in the NFL for discipline. He will tell you that's his key to success. 
That's why he's been able to play this long and be so good. He is legendary. All the rest of the NFL look at him and try to pattern and copy him. He's always the first guy at 5 in the morning in the workout room, even during off-season, even during vacations. He's always up at 5. He's never, and this always ruins the life of teenagers. He, Tom Brady is never out of bed past 9 o'clock in the evening. Never. He doesn't touch alcohol, even though he's as unsaved. He doesn't, he doesn't have convictions against that. He doesn't touch it. He won't eat ice cream. This was in Sports Illustrated. He won't eat ice cream unless it's made out of avocado. He's got his own private chef. Pays big money to have his own private chef. He is incredibly disciplined. Routine, the same routine, day after day. But folks, let me remind you Christians that Paul told a young man by the name of Timothy, Timothy, You can't be godly. You're going to be useless unless you have discipline. What is discipline? Your ability to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. Whatever this book says, I'm going to do it. Even if it means to my own demise, flesh speaking. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So it's all about discipline. So I make up my mind. I'm hungry. I want to I win. I know what it's like to lose. I don't want to lose anymore. So I've got that drive, that inner drive that drives me, which is going to drive me into being disciplined. My friend, I'll tell you, if you're not disciplined, I'll tell you why. You really don't have much of a desire to be the right kind of athlete. You need to get right. You need to get that right. Now, let me show you ingredient number three. I want to get to four because it's my favorite. But look at number, number three. Now, this is, this is all by itself. It's all by itself. It's not a couplet. But it's still very important. Let me show it to you. Verse 13. Everybody with me? Are you awake? All right, good. Verse number 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm still hungry. But this one thing I do. Next word out loud, church. Forgetting. Forgetting. Now, some of you are not following in a Bible. That concerns me. How do you know I'm not pulling your chain? You should have your Bible open. Forgetting. If there's one ingredient that is always true, people, about a great athlete, is they're always a good forgetter. I adore, I love, Dan, tennis. I've got my racket back there in my suitcase. If anybody wants to play this week, I'm so there. I love tennis. I play a couple times a week, especially when I'm in Greenville. I'm a member of a club, and, oh, I just, I just love tennis. But if you've ever watched a tournament, and by the way, for those of you that might be interested, the Australian Open is, is starting today. And, uh, but anyway, I, um, and that's always the first tournament of the year, so I'm, I'm, so, I'm so tickled. But anyway, that aside, you, when you hear a commentator talk about tennis, they always talk, these commentators are always former pros. They always talk about in tennis, forget the last shot. Forget the last shot. In golf, they talk about forget the last shot. Now, why are they saying that? Because in golf, in tennis, invariably you're going to hit a bonehead shot off the frame and goes somewhere or goes out of bounds. You didn't intend it. And it can be so frustrating. I so speak from experience. You want to chuck your racket sometimes. It makes you so mad. I didn't want the ball to go there. But if you're going to be the right kind of player, you've got to learn how to forget the last shot. It's all about the next shot. 
Forget the last shot. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, Mike, what in the world does that have to do with me? Every one of you, and I know this without having to know you personally, every one of you that are saved, you've got failures in your past. I've got failures in my past that if you knew about them, I'd be every shade of embarrassed. You'd be the same way. If we could see the failures that have happened in your life on that screen, uh, you'd leave the auditorium. You wouldn't stick around. It would be incredibly embarrassing. We've all got failures. And people, I would imagine that there are people sitting here tonight where you do nothing for Jesus Christ. You won't teach a Sunday school class. You won't give out a track. You do nothing because you can't get past a failure. Somebody may have laughed at you or you didn't do a great job, or somebody critiqued you and said something critical and it hurt your feelings, and you're letting your past, maybe your past has a divorce, maybe your past has an abortion, maybe you have been a drunk before. Folks, we've all got failures. And may I remind you, who's writing this? Who's writing? Paul. Do you remember what kind of past he has? People, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you. He was a Hitler. He was literally a Hitler. But you know what he's saying? It's under the blood. It's under the cross. I played for you tonight a number that we sang tonight that Roger led us. Calvary covers it all. That is on my newest CD, and the reason I put it on there is because I fell in love with it years ago. When we invited in my home church in Chicago, where I used to live, and I was on pastoral staff of a large church, in downtown Chicago, there's a very famous rescue mission called the Pacific Garden Mission. They produce Unshackled, which has been on the radio for 60, 70 years. Craig Hartman, by the way, has a couple episodes on that. But uh, the, the Pacific Garden Mission has a rich history. They were first founded in the mid 1800s. Billy Sunday got saved and discipled as a ministry of the Pacific Garden Mission. It's a famous ministry. I've preached there a couple of times. It's most unusual. But, that, but what I'd like you to know about the Pacific Garden Mission, and the reason I bring it up tonight is because most people don't know this, but they have a choir. The Pacific Garden Mission has a choir made up of about 70 or 80 men, all of whom have been saved through the ministry of Pacific Garden Mission. And that choir, if you're in the Chicago area, that choir will come to your church and do special music for the evening, if you'd like, free. We invited them at my home church in Schaumburg, which is a suburb of Chicago, and they came one Sunday night. It was a large church. We ran 1,300 on Sunday morning. We had a large choir loft, and those men filled that choir loft. They were all looking sharp. They had coats and ties on, all of them saved through the Pacific Garden Mission, lots of blacks, lots of Caucasians, lots of Hispanics in that choir. But there they were, standing tall, loving the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have never heard victory in Jesus the way they sang it. But the one number that choked me up was there they were, former drug addicts, former pimps, murderers, jail alumnus. And there they were, singing from the bottom of their hearts, Calvary covers it all. You're understanding why I play trumpet. Move me to tears. Now, folks, the reason I share that is because if anybody should forget their past, it's them. 
If anybody should get their past, forget their past, it's you. You know, sometimes I'm in churches. It's kind of a flip side of this coin. Sometimes I'm in churches where I'll hear this. Oh, Brother Mike, now I've not heard it this week, so please, I'm not coming at you. But I heard that, I've heard this over and over again. Oh, Brother Mike, you should have been here 10, 20 years ago. Our auditorium was full. We ran buses. We had a Christian school. Oh, in the heyday, this was a great ministry. I don't care. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't care what your history is. I mean, I do in a polite sort of way, but that's not a focus. You need to forget. I realize you might even have trophies in your past, and that's good. I'm glad you got them, but that ought not be your focus. Well, I led somebody to the Lord 20 years ago. I'm done. No, you're not, loser. Get your hunger back. Church, it's not about your past. You've got more game. I'll never forget, folks, watching. I, I'm, a, I'm a big, as you can understand, I'm a big Boston Celtics fan. I've been to many of their games because I lived in New England for 17 years. And I remember one time the Celtics got into a playoff, a playoff series with the Philadelphia 76ers. And the Philadelphia 76ers had a Hall of Fame guard by the name of Allen Iverson. You remember him? Allen Iverson was phenomenal. Played for the Sixers. And he was the kind of guard, he was, he was what was called a shooting guard. And in Allen Iverson's case, what that meant was, anytime he got the ball, he was a gunner. He's gonna, he, never, he never saw a shot he didn't like. He was very ball-centric. And he would get the ball and boom, boom, boom. And he, and he was good. He was really good. And he came to the garden, that's the Boston Garden. He came to the garden in a playoff game and shot. Boom, boom, boom. And everything he shot was what they call in basketball a brick. Clank, clank. Nothing would go in for him. Everything would hit the rim and bounce out. Boom, kaboom, kaboom. And if you're a Celtics fan, you were like, yeah, keep it up, loser. Yeah, keep shooting. Well, after the game was over, I watched the, I was watching this on TV. After the game was over, they were interviewing Allen Iverson. And people, all he would say was, you know, they'd ask him questions. Mr. Iverson, what was the problem tonight? You stunk. And all he would say was this, over and over again, all he said was this. Wait till the next game. But Mr. Iverson, you stunk. Wait till the next game. Did you break up with your girlfriend? Wait till the next game. Did you have a bad pizza? Wait till the next. That's all he would say. Wait till the next game. Finally, they got frustrated with him and stopped asking questions. A couple days later, the next game came. It was at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. He shot the lights out. Ladies and gentlemen, what a picture of you. Every one of us, we've got victories, we've got failures. You know what God says? Forget it. Don't let that be your focus. It's all about the next game. And may I say to every one of you that are breathing here tonight, you got more game. You got more game. One of the greatest soul winners I've ever seen in my life was still soul winning on his deathbed. It was my father-in-law, my hero was a great soul winner at the age of 87, was still telling the nurses about the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, get back in the game. There is no word in the Bible called retired. Not in there. Not in there. Stay in the game. People, do you understand? If you're still breathing, the reason you're still breathing is because God's got more game for you. Get busy. Could I get an Amen. All right, good. Three of you. Amen. All right. Now, let's get to the last one. I got five minutes. Hang with me. It may take a little longer than that, but not too much. And by the way, people, if you come tomorrow night, which I hope is all of you, I will be done. 
give or take a minute or two, I will be done right around 8 o'clock. It will not be a huge time commitment. I know some of you might have children and our jobs that you have to get up really early for. I will be done, give or take a few minutes, right around 8 o'clock, okay? Roger's going to give me lots of time. He's only going to sing two stanzas of the hymns and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, if I twist his arm enough. But anyway, uh, I will be done. right. Anyway, so it, last, last point. Would you look at it, please? Look, look, grab your Bible. Are you with me? Everybody is still awake? All right, watch this. Verse 14. Verse 14. I press toward, here's the goal. I press toward the what? What is that mark? What is that mark? And by the way, people, the Greek word is skopos. We get our word scope. Like you put on a rifle, we get our word. It means to look at something very carefully. What is our mark? Well, jump down to verse 17. You've got the same word over again. Look at verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me. Who's me, church? Paul, okay? Let me read it again, verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and, next word out loud, mark. Mark who? Mark them which ye have as, for, uh, as ye have us. As, I can't, I don't have my glasses on. Which ye Thank you. Let me read it. Brethren, be followers together of me. I can see. And mark them which walk or live so as ye have us for an example. What is Paul talking about? What are we talking about? Well, people, if you have the courage to walk into a teenager's room who's really into sports, what invariably do you see on the walls? Posters. Posters. Why? Because that teenager is marking that athlete. It might be a picture of a football player, basketball player, tennis player, golfer, whatever. I remember when I was in high school, I was a big Seattle Supersonics fan. Now, you've never heard of them because they became communist and moved to Oklahoma City. But I was a big Seattle Supersonics fan. In fact, for my 12th birthday, my parents took me to a game. I remember I bought a green and gold stocking cap. That was their colors, and I wore that thing until it was brown. And uh, But uh, I was a big, and, and so I was in a store like Walmart. It wasn't Walmart, but it was a store like Walmart, and I was in the poster. I was looking at posters. Now, you can't do that anymore because it's pornography. But back then it wasn't, and I was looking through the posters, and all of a sudden I came across this big two-foot-by-three-foot poster of a Seattle supersonic by the name of Spencer Haywood. He's now in the Hall of Fame. Spencer Haywood had what they called in basketball a gorgeous jump shot. And in this poster, Spencer Haywood is at the corner of the, of the basketball court at Key Arena where they played in downtown Seattle, and he's shooting the ball from the corner of the court, and the ball is right here on his fingertips, his elbow was pointed right at the, I mean, he, he had perfect form for a basketball. If you're into basketball, you'll understand what I'm talking about. He had perfect form. He had, a, he had a beautiful jump shot. And this was a perfectly timed photo where he's releasing the ball. I saw that poster. I fell in love with it immediately, and I bought it. I put that poster up in my room, and folks, I kid you not, I had every centimeter of that poster memorized, and I would go out into my driveway and try to mimic, try to copy, try to scope what Spencer Haywood looked like. And I would try to look just like him. And I would practice it that way. 
Ladies and gentlemen, God wants every one of you to have posters on the walls of your soul of people that you'd like to be like that are heroes for Jesus Christ. And Paul says, could I be one of them? Paul says, could I be one of them? Why would Paul do that? People, wouldn't you agree with me? Doesn't that sound a little arrogant? Paul's saying, be like me. Hey, Church of Philippi, all you Christians, be like me. Can you imagine your pastor standing up next Sunday morning? Hey, church, God's burdened my heart. I want all you to be just like me. Be like me. Some of you'd leave the church. Who does he think he is? Well, don't you have kind of that reaction with Paul? Why would Paul do that, folks? And remember, this is inspired. It's straight from God. It's God's breath. Why would Paul say that? Because people, Paul knew that when it came to humanity, he was just about the best you'll ever see when it came to Christ-likeness. If that poster is on the wall of your soul, you're going to chew on this. What would Paul be like if he were a member of this church? Play with that, would you? What would he be like? Would he like this revival stuff? Oh, you better believe it. What would Paul be like if he worked where you worked? And he did work, you know, he was a tent maker. What would Paul be like if he lived where you lived? What would Paul be like if he went to school where you go to school? That's God's will for you. That's what God wants from you. What would he be like? Fascinating to think about that. Let me take it a step further. The Bible says there in verse 17, did you notice? And mark them which ye have us as an ensample. Mark them. Have other posters too. That's why, church, the qualifications of a pastor, as given to you in Titus and in 1 Timothy, the qualifications of a pastor and a deacon are very, very high. You know why? Because by virtue of their position, by virtue of their office, by virtue of their calling, they are to be poster material. Wow. In fact, every one of you should have a desire, if you're saved, of being poster material. Every one of you. I'll tell you why. You are being watched. Those of you that are retired, I guarantee you, there are young couples watching you. Oh, so that's what a retiree is like that loves Jesus. I want to be like that someday. Those of you that are married, I guarantee you, there are young people watching you. Oh, so that's what a Christian marriage is like. I want to have one like that someday. Those of you that are single and out of high school, I guarantee you, there are teenagers watching you. Oh, so that's what a young college student or a young businessman is like. I want to be like that someday. Every one of you should have that desire. But I wonder how many of you might be like another world-class athlete I heard about. Let me tell you about it. My father-in-law, for a number of years, was a PR man for a boy's home. My father-in-law taught for a number of years, for a couple of decades, in Bakersfield, California. That's where my wife's from. He taught in the public school system. He taught journalism. And by virtue of his calling, by virtue of journalism, by virtue of just uh, all the projects that they had, he became friends, did my father-in-law, with Tommy Lasorda. And if you know that name, Tommy Lasorda, as probably most of you know, was the manager of the world champion Los Angeles Dodgers for years. My father-in-law knew him personally. Now, both of them are, are, are passed away now. Tommy Lasorda was Catholic, so he's probably in hell. That's very sad. My father-in-law, I know, is in heaven. 
But my father-in-law called Tommy one time because my father-in-law was in charge of having a big banquet once a year for all these great givers that gave to the Boys Home of the South that my father-in-law was a PR man for. And so one year he got the bright idea. He said, I wonder if I could get Tommy Lasorda to be our speaker. He called from Greenville, South Carolina to Tommy Lasorda in Los Angeles. He said, Tommy, this is Bob Nestor. I'm wondering if Tommy, if you could coincide with Tommy. He said, I know that your mother lives in Greenville and you visit her often. Is there any way that you could coincide a trip to visit your mother and speak for our banquet? Tommy, we can't afford a ticket, but is there any way that you could be our speaker? Tommy said to my father-in-law, Bob, I'd be, I'd be flattered. I'd love, my heart goes out to young people. I would love to be the speaker at a boys' home uh, banquet like that. And he was. My father-in-law picked him up at the airport there in Greenville, Spartanburg, and, and picked him up and took him to the banquet, and they ate a nice dinner. And that night, Tommy Lasorda got up, and folks, I want to tell, tell you something he shared with that audience. Tommy said, ladies and gentlemen, when I was in sixth grade, I lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and I volunteered to do something for a year that I hated, I despised, and that was being a school crossing guard. And he said, whether it was raining, snow, sun, whatever, I had to stand at that stupid sidewalk and help these snot-nosed kids across the busy street. But he said, I did it all year because I knew the reward was we got to go to a professional Philadelphia baseball game. And I love baseball. Tommy said, I fulfilled my commitment. And sure, at the end of the year, we got to go to a baseball game. He said, back then, they used to let children stand in the tunnel where the players would come on and off the field and get autographs. Tommy said, I got a brand new pad of paper, a nice sharp pencil. And he said, before the game even started, I got a, a number of autographs. But there was one particular autograph I wanted of a big shot slugger. Tommy wouldn't say who it was. Tommy said, I watched the game and I left the game early. That's hard to do for a sixth grader who loves baseball. But he said, I left the game early so I could get a good spot in the tunnel. He said, I got there and the game ended and players came down the tunnel. But he said, I purposely waited for this big shot slugger. Tommy said, finally, he came off the field. And Tommy said, I stepped out in front of him and I said, please, sir, could I have your autograph? And Mr. Big Shot took his, took his arm and shoved little Tommy out of the way and said, get out of my way, kid. I don't have time for that right now. Tommy said, I was crushed. I was so hurt. Eight years later, Tommy Lasorda is this hot major league rookie pitcher. He's standing on the pitcher's mound pitching one of his first professional games. And as he was pitching, who should step up to bat? Mr. Big Shot. Tommy said, I got my signals from my catcher. I wound up. Now, Tommy is left-handed, and I'm right-handed, so I'm doing this backwards. But anyway, Tommy said, I wound up, and I threw a fastball right for his head. <laughs> Tommy said, every signal that I got from my catcher, catcher I did nothing but throw fastballs for his head. After the game was over, Mr. Big Shot went up to this little rookie called Tommy Lasorda and said, Son, what in the world is your problem? What did I ever do to you? And Tommy said, I looked at him eye to eye and I said, Buddy, years ago you didn't have time for me and today I didn't have time for you. 
And Tommy Lasorda went on to say this, people, that when he became the manager of the Dodgers, every spring he would sit all of his new players, whether they were trades, whether they were rookies, he'd sit them down in a room, and he would tell them that story, and he would finish with this. You are now a Dodger. I am your manager. And as long as you are on my team, you will take time for the fans. They are the reason you're here. I got to see one time the Dodgers played the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field in Chicago. As is customary in Major League Baseball, the home team came out to warm up first. That would be the Cubs. I was standing with a guy who's now the baseball coach of Bob Jones University. But I was standing with a guy that was in my singles group when I was a pastor up there. That man that I was standing with, his name is Brent, used to play minor league for the Cubs. He kept calling out to the first baseman, Gracie, Gracie, they had been roommates. Gracie, Gracie, it's Brent, it's Brent. All the Cubs would do is they ignored us. They were so stuck up. They left the field. Out came the Dodgers. They were so fun. I watched Oral Hershiser. Do you remember him? I watched, he's a believer. I watched Oral Hershiser walk up behind Tommy Lasorda, grab his baseball cap, and toss it to a fan in the stands who was asking for it. <laughs> they were fun. They interacted with us. And I am happy to announce tonight, people, the Dodgers won that game. <laughs> but I shared that illustration with you folks, and thank you for laughing. I wanted you to. But I wonder how many of you are kind of like Mr. Big Shot when it comes to your Christianity. You're all about you. If I want to drink it, I'm going to drink it. It's my life. If I want to watch it, I'm going to watch it. If I don't want to go to church, I'm not going. It's my life, and I'm going to do what I want. You stuck up, arrogant, backslidden, turkey. You are so not what Jesus Christ wants. Every one of you ought to have a desire, if you're right with God, you ought to have a desire. I want to be poster material. You are here, Christian. You're here for the fan. You're here for others. It's not so you can have a family, although that's a nice perk. It's not so you can enjoy marriage, although that's a nice perk. It's not so you can have a job, although that's a nice perk. It's so that you can live for the Lord Jesus Christ and minister in the lives of others. As ye, I'm going to quote Galatians. As ye have therefore opportunity to do good, do good unto all men, especially the household of faith. When you stay away from church, when you get self-focused, you are just like Mr. Big Shot. You offend. God wants you to have a servant attitude. Post a material. So friends, in closing, we've talked about this tonight that every one of you ought to be hungry. You're not there yet. None of you are there yet. No matter what your age, stay hungry. Paul was. That hunger is going to drive you to be disciplined. You cannot please God. And this is what Paul told Timothy. You can't please God, people, without discipline. Forget the past. I know you've done good things. I know you've done bad things. It's behind you. It's all about more gain. And lastly... Be poster material. Be the right kind of example. We call that 
a fancy Christian word, testimony. What do you like? Would you bow your heads, please?